this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations. All at hoyfulproductions.com. I can't imagine someone told me when I was 15, 20 years old, the technology today, that it would blow my mind. I always reference this article that I read like three or four years ago, but I can never remember what it was called. But uh, basically it talks about like that we kind of live in this like bubble of reality where anytime if you step backwards in time and look at the things that we have now, our minds would be blown. But because we have to exist now that it doesn't phase us, you know, like right. Right. You know, we pick up our iPhones or our Androids and, you know, like it's a computer in our pocket and it does like everything a computer does pretty much. Yet yeah. we get annoyed at it and throw across the room or something because, you know, something <laughs> slow. <laughs> so true. Do you think that being an artist and especially like putting stuff online and stuff, how do you, f- I mean, how does technology feel for you right now? You know, is it, is, are you gelling with the way that things are working or their frustrations? because of how, especially in the Bay Area, how much tech is of such supreme importance? As far as the artwork goes, I think the one advantage I do have is my skill set, as far as drawing and knowing the fundamentals, don't really rely on knowing everything there is to know about, say, Photoshop or Procreate. So if I learn the basics of Photoshop, or learn the basics of Procreate or any other, you know, art program that, that's popular right now. As long as you know the fundamentals, it translates over to the program uh, pretty easily, you know, once you learn what you can do with the program, because it's just a tool. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, uh, uh, hey, I got Photoshop now, so I'm going to be good. And they're, they're frustrated 
because Photoshop didn't make them a good artist. And I think a lot of people, um, especially starting out, they, they think that the program is going to make them a good artist. They got all the bells and whistles and they're good to go. And then they're frustrated when what they come out with is not quality work or not what they envision. So as far as like Photoshop and Procreate, you know, I use the bare minimum of it and, and I use it to enhance the artwork. It's basically just another tool. But, it, you know, I don't use it to, I don't rely on it heavily. I still, you know, like to draw on pencil and, uh, with pencil and paper whenever I get a chance, you know, time allows. And Photoshop is just a tool. Never rely on it, even though sometimes, you know, I may need it for as far as, um, you know, speeding up a process and whatnot. But um, if I don't have Photoshop, it's not the end of the world. So. The technology doesn't really frustrate me so much because uh, I don't rely on it. It seems almost at a certain point with tools, it becomes like uh, the Notorious B.I.G. song. More money, more problems. More tools, yes. more more glitches and more bugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm, you know, I'm still using the same Photoshop that I got six, seven years ago, maybe. And it's PS5. And I'm not sure where they're up at now, but... I'm still using PS5, and I've not seen anything on any of the new Photoshop programs that'll make me want to upgrade, because I don't need it. I think probably the only thing I would like to do is uh, uh, rotate the screen, but I don't need it. And, you know, I have Procreate on the iPad Pro, and that rotates the screen just fine, and I, I don't feel the need to learn or get the new photoshop program because i just i don't need it do you think that that simplification makes things a little bit easier for you as far as focus the simple uh you mean the simplification of not my, not getting to a point where you have to have the newest and the freshest thing you know just like this works for me and i'm just not going to worry about that anymore does that help with your focus oh yeah definitely once i got the basics of the photoshop because it's frustrating at first because you're learning a new program just like any tool it takes practice uh once you get the basics of it then you can focus on what you're creating rather than focus on focusing on uh the tools that you're using once you know how to use the tools then then you can just focus on what you're creating i mean the simpler the tool is the easier it is to focus on what you're doing because um you know i could go out and get you know, the latest Photoshop program or the latest, I don't know, Cintiq tablet or whatever it is that's out right now. And I'd have to learn all that, all the programs on that all over again. And it gets a little bit frustrating. But I, right now, I just don't feel the need to. What I have is working for me right now. You know, maybe in a little bit, it won't. But right now, I can just focus on the artwork and not have to worry about the programs and the bells and whistles and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I think it's the simplification definitely helps with focusing uh, on what you're doing and what you're creating. Absolutely. Are you lucky that you just always had that mindset or did you have to train yourself into thinking that way to get over this? Like, you know, there's some people obsess about pens, having the right pen, or were you just always like that? Oh no. Yeah, no, I was one of those people. I, 
I have a lot of uh, artists that inspired me over the years, uh, comic book artists, and I'd I'd look high and low. Oh, what what pen did he use right there? What what paper did he use? Uh, what program was he using? You know, uh, all these things that are not important. I want I don't want to say they're not important because you know, as far as some some mediums work better on some papers. So there's some there's some things you do you should know. But um, that knowledge, whether you're using the latest, you know, pen that came out, you know, and that's not going to make you a better artist. And it took me a while to find out or not find out, but, you know, figure out. Because, again, there's that that frustrating period where, you know, oh, my God, I got this pen that, you know, Jim Lee uses. I draw like Jim Lee. Why? 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 It took a while before I realized before it, it sunk in that, you know, I can't draw like Jim Lee because I'm not learning the fundamentals. Uh, I'm not putting in the work that, you know, someone like Jim Lee does or any professional artist, really. I think everyone goes through that at some point, or maybe that's just me trying to make myself feel better <laughs> about going through that phase. But um, I definitely went through that phase. Absolutely. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, honestly, sometimes I still do. Sometimes I think, Oh my God, so and so used, you know, paper number four, weight 140, and yada, yada, yada. I got to go out and find this paper. And I get the paper and I realize, ah, you know what? I could have used a photocopy paper in my printer. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it takes a while to get out of that mindset. And, and sometimes you, you still find yourself um, falling into that mindset. So, you know, it's one of those things. Well, when you talked about, putting in the work for you what is you know what is what does that mean when you say put in the work what are you doing you know like what exactly is putting in the work for you so um a lot of people they they let's say uh i focus on comic book journey uh a lot of people they focus on the big splash pages and uh, they want to draw superman flying spider-man swinging and you know captain america punching and and that's all fine and dandy but a lot of times in comic books, you got to draw people sitting at the desk, typing at the computer, uh, driving in a car, drinking coffee at, you know, coffee shop. And so a lot of people spend all their time drawing all the action poses. And then they get to a conversation between two people and they, they can't do it. And that goes back to fundamentals. They, 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 they lack fundamentals to really um, understand how the body works, the anatomy, uh, resting anatomy, moving anatomy, or in motion anatomy. And so putting in the work, uh, when I say putting in the work, it refers to, you know, going to your library, taking, um, uh, what do you call it, life drawing classes, sitting down and learning the fundamentals, all that boring stuff, life drawing, all that stuff seems boring, and it is. It seems boring because it is boring, but it's beneficial in that you 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 learn the fundamentals of how things work, whether it's nature or, like I said, human anatomy. So really, you got to study is what it comes down to. And you know, for myself, I didn't go to um, an art school; I couldn't afford it. So I had to read a lot of books, a lot of books. 
and I had to sit down and read over those books and study and study and study. Now, I mean, good grief, you just go to YouTube and type how to draw hands and everything just pops up. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they got it, they got it so lucky right now. I mean, it's, it's so easy to find out how to do anything, really. So when, when someone says, oh, uh, I don't know how to draw or I, I can't figure out how to draw, I don't know where to go, I just kind of looked at them and say, um, YouTube, Google, it's, it's all right there. You just got to sit down and dedicate yourself to learning and be patient. And that was my biggest thing, too. Still is uh, impatience. It's almost like that ease of access of information, how everything's available to us at any point. has made people a little bit lazier, you know, because it's so easy. You know, like you said, before you had to like put in the work and, and go to the library, you had to go places, take classes, and you can still do those things, but you didn't have to. I mean, you had to, you know, as opposed to now, you don't have to. So people don't even yeah. think to, it seems like people don't even think to do the easy things like, hey, just watch like 30 YouTube videos. Yeah. I mean, do you think, do you see that as well? Or is that just me? Am I being crazy? I imagine that is the case. I mean, it took me a while to realize that, you know, all this information was becoming really, really available. I mean, so when I started drawing, I, I when I started really realized that I had some kind of a talent, I was probably in high school, my senior year in high school. Um, I had always drawn, even as a kid. Even in, in high school was when it really, you know, a lot of things happened. And, and I really kind of realized that, you know, it was something that I really wanted to do. But really, it was only within the past probably 10, 15 years that I realized that I could probably try to start making an actual living doing this and i'm still working on that but also during that time when i realized that i also realized that the the ease of of knowledge to anyone trying to be an artist was it's just skyrocketed from from i'd say 19 and uh, i'll say 1990 to 2000 early 2000s it's just it's just everything was online everything was online so i think the ease of it you know i don't know if it made people necessarily necessarily lazier i think maybe it made people comfortable mm -hmm. you know the, the sense of urgency is not there uh, and i'm speaking myself also i'm not excluding myself in that you know uh, the sense of urgency was not there. Um, I don't need to go outside to learn to draw. I can just watch it on YouTube, which is not a bad thing. But again, it goes to fundamentals. You gotta you gotta learn. You gotta go outside and learn how to draw these things rather than watch someone draw and think you can, you know, absorb it by just watching uh, you know some YouTube videos. I'm not saying that you can't, but it takes a lot of YouTube videos, <laughs> a lot of YouTube videos and books. Let's go back to that, the word talent. You mentioned, you know, that at a certain age, you noticed that you had talent. To you, what is talent? You know, like, how do you define that? I feel like it's a, it's a word that everybody has like a different definition of. You know, I hear people say uh, natural talent. And that almost implies that uh, if you're not naturally talented at something that you can't be or you can never get talented, there are some things that are like that. 
like, um, uh, let's say sports. You can be naturally talented at sports, but you can also work at sports. But at some point, there's a limit, right? If you're five three, you're probably never going to be able to dunk over LeBron James, no matter how <laughs> athletic you are at five three. There's only so much your talent will allow you to do on the court or in football or whatever. But as an artist, you know, outside of you know a broken hand or carpal tunnel, it's not a skill that is going to diminish as you get older. It'll only diminish as you maybe stop drawing. So I don't believe that talent, as far as artists, uh, yeah, there's natural, there's people that, you know, naturally gravitate towards being able to draw. But I think anyone can learn to draw. I really do. I think anyone can become talented at drawing if they put in the work. Maybe person A, who is naturally talented, will catch on quicker, be better quicker. But that doesn't mean person B, who's never picked up a pencil or drawn in their life, can't do the same. It might take them longer. They might have to try a little harder, but, you know, they can, they can, they can do it as long as they put in the work. And once you put in the work, it talent draws. You know, I think it was uh, Adam Hughes. I want to say it was Adam Hughes, or maybe Adam Hughes was quoting someone. He's an artist, popular artist in the comic book industry. But he was saying that uh, it takes like a thousand drawings before you start to get good. But the longer you take to that thousand drawings, then that's the longer it's going to take for you to get you know any good. So some people, they've been drawing all their lives. They got to those thousand drawings a long time ago. Now, I don't think there's any kind of... Uh, a survey or any kind of, you know, data to support that. But, you know, it seems like it seems pretty accurate. I mean, it's almost like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of practice thing that everyone quotes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he may have, that's made them, that may have been what he was quoting. I'm not exactly sure, but as far as artwork goes, I think talent. Yeah. Well, it can be, Natural, I don't think just because it's natural uh, or maybe you're not a natural artist doesn't exclude you from becoming a great artist. What do you think it is about the way that you grew up that taught you that work ethic to be the one who was willing to put in the work to get that done? I grew up and it was just me and my mom. So she was always at work. She was always at work. So I was usually at the house by myself. and. You know, as far back as I can remember, I always drew. So I can't exactly remember when I first started drawing, but it was something that I always did. It wasn't until I think in the seventh grade where I took an actual art class and I learned fundamentals that I realized that I was actually mm, a little better, I guess, than most of the people. Mm. Thinking of it now, I remember uh, even in the sixth grade, you know, I got uh, most artistic or most talented or something like that. So it was, it was something that I always did. It was something that was always natural to me. Not to say that I always, I was always good, but I always drew. I was always doodling on stuff. You know, everyone knew me as the artist, even though you know. I didn't necessarily consider myself an artist, but it, I was the oh, that's the guy who draws. 
you know, that was what I was known for. But I can't remember when, when, when I realized, you know, okay, this is what I want to do. You know, I, th- I think that came a lot later. See, I had a kind of a similar experience in the sense that I grew up in a single parent household with just my mother and I, and I draw, I drew a lot as well. So now I, I have to wonder, like, do you think that there's a connection there that, you know, like, obviously that's not the only people who draw, but do you think that people that grew up where it's just, you know, we're spending a lot of time alone, you know, drawing something that we gravitate towards? I don't know. It, it, it's possible. I always like to... Uh draw the things that I would watch or read. So when I was a kid, I drew a lot of Spider-Man, Superman, drew a lot of Star Wars. Star Wars was a huge thing for me when I was a kid. It was huge. It, I mean, it still is. But uh, it was a huge thing for me. And, you know, it's funny, all my kid drawings burned down in a fire at my grandma's place several years ago, so I don't oh, have no. any of those with me. But, yeah, that's like, I mean, everyone was okay. That's the most important thing, but you know, I and mean, it wasn't even an immediate thought. It was like maybe a couple months later, I thought, oh my God, the fire, the drawings, they're all gone. You know, like I said, I was home alone and, and you know, I had an overactive imagination. So I would draw things that I thought were cool. You know, so I'd draw Han Solo or Indiana Jones or, you know, whatever was cool at the time and, you know, whatever was out in the theater, which the first Star Wars movie I remember was uh, Empire Strikes Back. 81 that had a huge influence on me huge i was all about the pop culture you know star wars um i still draw a lot of star wars ghostbusters uh indiana jones you know gi joe thundercats e-man transformers all that stuff just fed into my already over uh, overactive imagination and i think maybe yeah you know a lot of kids that are, you know, come from a single parent home probably do have a, a, somewhat of an overactive imagination because, you know, they're left alone for periods at a time. They got to entertain themselves, whether that's art or whether it's music or, you know, I guess now it's different. Now they just play video games, but <laughs> you know, from, from what I understand, but uh, back in the 80s, I, you know, didn't have a, I didn't have a gaming council or anything. You have to go outside and you had to pretend, and you know, you had to pretend you were the Star Wars characters. I was always Lando, so uh, yeah, it, you know, I think there is a, you know, a correlation between someone being artistic. Not necessarily that you know, hey, I have both my parents, so I can't draw. I, I don't think that's the case, but it's not surprising that you know someone becomes artistic in whatever way they become artistic. You know, there's different ways to become artistic, I believe. But coming from a, a single single parent you know, home, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you said that phrase a couple of times, overactive imagination. I remember hearing that so many times when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. And I think you touched on something there. I, I really do think it has to do with, you know, we don't have siblings. So, of course, we have overactive yeah. imaginations because who else are we supposed to talk oh, yeah. to? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are many times I, you know, my mom would bust into the room and, like, what's going on here? I just, I lose track of reality, really, <laughs> because I'm, I'm busy. I, you couldn't convince me that I wasn't in the Millennium Falcon flying through space, you know. 
until my mom busted into the room and I remember, oh yeah, <laughs> that's not actually happening, is it? <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that over my active imagination, I got called weirdo a, a bunch of times at school, just because you know, I mean, because I was, I guess. The things that uh that people call you weird for when I was in school uh are the things that are kind of cool now. Like <laughs> when I was in school, you know, it, it, it's kind of upsetting, but it's also kind of cool at the same time. When I was in school, oh, especially in high school, uh you couldn't tell anyone that you you liked comic books or you were into Star Wars or you know you were a nerd or a dork or whatever. That wasn't cool. Now it's just, it's the coolest thing. And it's just like, you guys, man, you guys are like 20 years late <laughs> or maybe even more, but it's all right. It's like when I watch uh, Stranger Things and I watch those kids and I'm like, yep, that was me. I just finished, it's so funny that you brought it up because I just finished, uh, I've watched both seasons, but uh, I just finished rewatching season uh, one this morning. <laughs> so it's funny that you brought it up because I uh, I love Stranger Things. And here's the thing about Stranger Things is that I watched it before all the hype. And what's funny is the only reason I watched it, the only reason I was scrolling through Netflix, and you know how they have the uh, the thumbnail of the shows and the shows and whatnot, right? And the thumbnail for it, I realized it looked like someone drew it. It looked like an illustration. Right. And uh, similar to Juice Chusen, who is a popular um, movie poster illustrator, especially in the 80s and 90s. I knew it wasn't Juice Chusen, but it looked like an illustrated poster. And that's what caught my eye. Because it looked like an illustrated poster that they used to do for movies back in the 90s and the 80s that they had stopped doing for a little while. It's starting to pick up again now. But, but that's what drew me in. And that was the only thing I had to go. So I just pressed play and I watched it and <laughs> I was stuck. I couldn't believe what I found. I think it had probably been out for maybe a week at that time. And it was a trip down memory lane. It really was. Yeah. All the references they made, everything. It was just like, oh my God. I was, I was about that age. Let's see. I think it takes place in 83. So I was like, I was like nine. Uh, at that time, so I was right around that same age that they, the kids are in the show, and oh man, I I couldn't believe what I was watching. I love that show. I had a similar experience, although I didn't click because of the artwork. I clicked because of Winona Ryder. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she, she's doing stuff again. Yeah, she's alive. Oh, man, she was amazing. Yeah, yeah, she was amazing. Yeah, we hadn't heard of her, uh, heard from her since she. Uh, was she like? Did she steal something from a store or something like yeah, that? Yeah, and then something with pills or something. I don't remember. She just disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, but she, man, she came back. She was great on the show. Now, uh, going back to kind of talking about, like, you know, like you said, you were always Lando and, you know, connecting with Spider-Man. What do you think it was about characters that you connected with? You know, for me, like, some of the comic book characters, like, I love the X-Men. And the X-Men, to me, was about, like, because I was like a nerdy kid and I wasn't super popular. There was a part of me that always hoped I'd wake up one day a mutant, <laughs> you know, just like, Oh yeah, I'm special, you know, something like that. Did you connect oh. in, to those characters in that way? Or was it something different? Oh, for you? A no, absolutely. That's absolutely. I can't tell you how many times that I wished 
that ninjas would bust into my sixth grade <laughs> class and I'd have to fight them off and it'd be great. And I'd be the hero. Like, like I said, overactive imagination, but it's the heroicism of them. I'm not going to lie. I learned a lot of, uh, let's say life lessons, but I guess, yeah, life lessons from a lot of the, the movies and TV shows that I used to watch, especially look, Optimus Prime pretty much was my father. I mean, <laughs> uh, during the 80s, all right, you couldn't tell me that I didn't learn anything from Optimus Prime. But yeah, I you know, it's just the whole the whole fantastic uh, out of this world element of it all. And the whole what if that happened to me, what would I do? Would I be as heroic? I would, you know, I would hope so. You know, you would want to be the, you know, as cool as the bad guys were, you know, I think you want to be the good guy. Uh, at least I did. And, and you know, and I also I also gravitated toward the good guys with kind of an edge, you know. So Han Solo was my favorite character. Indiana Jones. Uh, when when Transformers came out, it was always the ones uh, with a little bit of edge. So I, I loved Hot Rod. Snake Eyes was my, mysterious. Where you, I always gravitated to those, those heroes that weren't. They didn't want to be heroes, but they were reluctant heroes. House around the corner, which I'd taken that trip like a million times. Except this time, he was laying on a little hill out in the yard and he was looking up at the sky when I came up. And so I just kind of walked up to him and he's like, dude, get down here. You have to see this. So I was like, what is it? You know, I got immediately curious. Um I parked myself next to him and I was looking up there and he, he pointed out up in the sky, there was a triangle configuration of these three lights, but they, they would stop and then they would move in a way that we don't have any, especially in the 90s, we didn't have any kind of aircraft that could do that. And what was interesting is at first it seemed as it was three lights on one object, but then they would kind of spread out and go different directions and then come back into that formation. So I, I hope you weren't all like queued up waiting for an alien abduction story because that's really as exciting <laughs> as it was. That's pretty but fucking exciting. I'm sorry. <laughs> to this day, I've never known what that is. But now with the internet blowing out, I've seen other people describe the exact same sequence of events happening in the sky and ha also having no idea what the hell they saw. Right. That's, I mean, that's not far off from the description of the Phoenix lights, which the, the extraordinary thing about the Phoenix lights is it's number one happened over many periods of, of years and seen it hundred by hundreds of people at a time. Hmm. And it, they, you know, the, the, the explanations that they've tried to give on the official story to clarify, um, Phoenix Lights wasn't just three lights, but it would go into a formation. Um, I believe in the Phoenix Lights, it was a boomerang formation. Hmm. So it seemed like a, almost like a V, but flatter. Um, and then they would, the lights would actually, instead of separate out, they would converge into one hmm. and then spread back out. And hundreds of people looking up at this and saw this. There's video of it. It's on YouTube. I mean, it's like, as far as tangibility on it, on a, seeing something that you can't explain in the sky, that's about as tangible as it gets. There's actual video and it's not super shaky. Yeah. And they tried to say, oh, you know, it's, it was geese. And that it was the, the, 
the lights of the city were reflecting off the stomachs of the geese. <laughs> I, that's where that's where like I start to go. You know what? The, this is science needs to chill the fuck out and ex- saying that they know what exists and what doesn't exist because sometimes when they try to explain things, it sounds stupider than saying it was a fucking alien. <laughs> right. Yeah, like a weather balloon. It's like, okay, a weather balloon might be up there doing something weird or, you know, being mm-hmm. a strange light. But does it move around quickly and then come to a complete stop in the air? You know? Does it suddenly track back and go the other direction? Like you Yeah, don't... 90 degrees. They, they say some of them turn. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the Phoenix lights. I thought what you were talking about, or maybe it is the same one, but people were trying... They were trying to say that it was the highway in the distance, headlights of cars refracting through the air. Mm. Yeah. Like I said, there's, there's all of those crazy ideas that they have or, um, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the ghost lights, which are like the orbs that will fly near the ground. Oh, yeah. I saw one of those that was so obviously like I could buy a, a VFX program with a plug-in that would do this for me. You're like, is this a segment from 1987 Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, and all the little sound <laughs> effects and lightning bolts flying off of it were just too perfect, if you know right. what I mean. Well, so what they've what they've supposedly there are multiple types of those, but let's not go into that right now. But yeah. one of the excuses of that is car headlights reflecting off of like water and then reflecting in the air. But it just I understand physics can do some crazy shit. I'm not going to lie. There are some crazy things that can happen, especially with light refraction. I understand that. But some shit is just... The excuses are just so stupid that it was like... It's like, did you find the dumbest scientist to come up with this one? Because Mm -hmm. it doesn't even make sense. It's like, what you're talking about is lower probability than the fact that a life form from another planet is here. (laughs) So your excuse is is not valid. But you said you saw it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Uh, you, you said you saw more on more than one occasion. You've seen it. Was it the same thing on multiple occasions? No, it was not more than one occasion. It was just multiple objects on okay. one occasion. I understood you reverse meaning. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of, um, have you heard of the Rendlesham forest incident? No. Um, shit, I can't remember. The name of the incident. So, Rendlesham Forest is a U.S. or was I'm not sure if it still exists. U.S. military base. I believe it's an Air Force base, but in England, okay. and it's right outside of Rendlesham Forest. There, I don't remember the exact story of the Rendlesham Forest store. Whoa, words come out the right way in the right order. Um, forest incident, but before that, in I believe the same place at the same base. There was an incident that I can't remember the name of, but they had one of the one of the people on the base was out doing patrols and they saw a strange light. And they saw it up in the sky. And so they, they reported it. I'm gonna get a lot of the detail details wrong because obviously I'm sure. prepared to share this story. So <laughs> I'm just it's more fun than you reading me Wikipedia right now, anyway. Right. So basically the the guy leaves the report. As they do, you know, like they're doing patrol, they have to report everything they saw on the patrol and it's part of it. So then the commanding officer comes in, I think it's the next day and is looking at like the night reports and somebody says something like, you know, blah, 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 saw UFO, you know, just kind of like making fun of them. And so he looks at it and he's like, well, 
it doesn't matter if it sounds silly. It's like our job to figure out what the hell this is. Because his thought process, I'm assuming, was this could have been, you know, a, a Russian or a foreign power using some kind of thing to spy on us. So we need to, our job is to figure this shit out. So they go out there and the next night and they look around and they see it again. And it's this light up in the sky and they've got, so I think they pull out like some of those big, um, can't remember what they call them, all lights or whatever, you know, those big like spotlights basically, mm-hmm. but they're military spotlights and they're shining it up at this thing and they're, they're not seeing anything. And then the things they're running on generators because you know, they're on wheels. They start shutting off. Hmm. Like, these things, you know, you know how military things are built. They're usually built so you know you can kick the shit out of them. Yeah. And so the these military light- standards, even. Yeah. So these things start turning off, and at some point, the light comes down from the sky, and it's like a it's like an orb, right? And it's going through the forest. They're following it through trees, and it's moving to avoid trees. Hmm. And these are military men. The guy's got a halt. Was his name? Um, He's he's got a one of those little hand recorders where he's talking into it and he's talking into it while they're following it. Like describe miserable. And it's probably the reason that there's so much anxiety and so much antagonism. There's two good quotes from the book here. Number one, all the things that bind us together and make life worth living, community, family, friendships, thrive on the one thing we never have enough of time and the second quote inevitably a life of hurry can become superficial when we rush we skim the surface and we fail to make connections with the world or other people Ooh, i feel that one i really feel that one this is one of the reasons i talk about rereading all the time because it's so easy to skim across the surface of things you have to go back and see what you missed it's also the reason things like uh, single tasking are important, right? Because if you're doing two things at once, you're skimming both of them. So they say multi- multitasking is not tasking at all. You're doing two things half-ass. Henry David Thoreau once said, books must be read as deliberately and as reservedly as they were written. And there's a lot of sense to that, right? The sentence that has so much work into it, you should really take the time to read it. And make sure that you're capturing what it's actually saying. This is one of the reasons that I always praise paper notebooks. Because paper notebooks, they they work in a way that pulls you into them. That when you actually start to work with the paper notebook, there is nothing else to it. It's one-dimensional. It is the single tasking of writing. You know, when you're at the computer, there's so many other things at your fingertips. Things that can pop in, flickering and power and all these things you have to worry about. But the notebook is just one thing with one purpose. And that slows you down. Because when it comes down to it, this isn't about speed necessarily. It's about intention. It's about being present. As I've mentioned before, the idea of walking with headphones everywhere all the time, that you're never really anywhere. You're always in some sort of liminal state. When you rush, you're never anywhere either. Think about driving through a city. 
if you're if you're in a car that's going through the main street of a city at 80 miles an hour, were you ever actually there? And isn't that so much different than being the person walking down the street through that same city? You're there. And if you the longer you're there, the more you're there. I've I've been to Europe, but I don't really say that I've been to the places I've been in Europe. Because the time that I went there, I was on a bus tour. And a bus tour is like being somewhere and not being somewhere. Whereas going somewhere and staying there in one place for a period of time, that's being in Paris, being in London, being in Geneva. Driving through, looking at the monuments, getting on the bus and leaving, eh, it's not really there. There's no there there. One of the other things in this book that I really enjoyed that I had never heard of was the idea of the slow city, or in America, what's called new urbanism. And this is the idea of making communities with walkable neighborhoods that have lots of public spaces. And some of them, this is a really neat idea. I'm fascinated with architecture. So some they talk about some of these cities are planned in such a way, they're built in such a way that the neighborhoods are built with the garages behind the houses, and there are lanes that run behind the houses. So the actual streets with the cars are behind the house, and everything in front of the house is just walking area and yard, and it's removed from the sight of sitting in your house and looking out and seeing cars. There's also the the slow or the new urbanism city looks a lot too the European cities, where people live above the shops. They don't need to drive to the grocery store. They just need to walk downstairs. So I've been trying to find some books on that, to read more about that, because I'm really fascinated with what that with, with, with what that looks like. I want to go to some of these places, because they do exist. So those are the four books that I found most interesting this year. There is a fifth one. But I did not talk about it tonight. The reason I didn't talk about it tonight is because when I was doing this feed in four different feeds, I had the book club semi-literate, and I covered one of these books in a whole episode all to itself. So I always recommend going back to the archives, and tonight I'm going to recommend going back to episode 17 and listening to the episode Breath, which is about the book Breath by James Nestor, which is all about breathing and and about uh, anxiety for me <laughs> and how that plays into breathing. I'm also going to recommend episode 16, which was done as the episode that I mentioned earlier as brainstorms with me and Lamb talking for about an hour. And in episode 16, what we talked about is the idea from Michael Bond's book about the brain being built on the structure of maps. And uh, if you want to go over to Patreon and become a patron, you can also get access to that full list of all the books that I read this year. There are 70 of them. And, uh, you know, there's two books in there that I, I didn't want to talk about in here because I don't want to talk about fiction. Or I feel like talking about fiction. But two books that I really love that are on that list. Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Everybody's read this book. I finally read it. It's incredible. And then The Wizard's First Rule by Terry Goodkind. This is a fantasy book, and it is a 
thick book. It's over a thousand pages, at least in the version I have. And I burned through that thing so fast. I looked forward to picking it up every night. And as you know, I don't tend to read books from front to back. I tend to read them and then jump to another book. That book, it had my attention. So those two books, plus Breathe, and these four, and then there are 63 more on that list for you to check out. So patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall. Become a patron today. Support the show. I really appreciate that because uh, I like to pay my bills. And it's damn hard to do in 2020. You can also go to the Lend the Hand page on my website where there are nine other options other than Patreon to help support this show. And one of those is to buy books using the links that I use in the episode because I use affiliate links. I don't use affiliate links whenever possible to Amazon because Amazon is actually actively working to destroy local bookstores. Instead, I work with a place called bookshop.org. And bookshop.org actually works with independent bookstores and donates part of the proceeds from the money they make from book sales to local bookstores. You can even go onto that site and say, this is the local bookstore that I like. Have all of my proceeds from my purchases go to that store specifically. And it's it's particularly important to support local bookstores in 2020 because they've had a rough year. So as I said, the links in all of my episodes, including today's and including that list of 70 books that I have on Patreon, are using 95% bookshop.org links. The only time I use Amazon link is when a book is not available through bookshop.org or because it's like a Kindle exclusive thing that's literally available nowhere else. So hope you guys enjoyed this. I'm going to try to do these list episodes to end out this year. I think maybe tomorrow we're going to do, I've got, what do I have left? I could do episodes on movies, TV shows, and podcast episodes. So we'll see what happens. I don't know which of those I will be interested in making a list of tomorrow, but one of those is probably what you're going to hear. Tell a friend. <laughs> like, or top four? Mine. You have might been, have been top five. For anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, when you had a MySpace, you had, you know, say you had 50 friends. Nobody had like 300 friends then, but you had like 50 friends. Right. You'd pick like a top group, and then those were like, I think they just showed up at the top of your page when you signed in so that you could go check them out first. But then when people mm-hmm. went to look at your page, they could see who your top people were. So it was like this. There was there was a, probably the first intrusion of like um, social media guilt. <laughs> it was like, why am, I, <laughs> why am I not in your why, top five? Yeah, how come I'm not top five? <laughs> yeah, like if you don't have your girlfriend in your top adding five. adding more and more. <laughs> yeah, you were in why, trouble then. Maybe that's why I can't remember the number. Maybe it was like five, and then it was like, okay, fine, you can have ten. I think they did five, eight, and ten. That I think sense. that's how it went. Yeah. I think technically it still exists too on MySpace. And Tom was still was it Tom oh, that was Tom. for Facebook? Didn't do you... <laughs> like the unchanging photo in the white T-shirt waving. I know. <laughs> It's so funny. All you people too young to have experienced MySpace, you really missed something. <laughs> it wasn't very it's long a ghost either. Town now. 
It was maybe like what, like a year? Mm. Or was it? It wasn't very long. Maybe it was longer. I'm not sure. It felt like it was like... I felt like after 2008, when the economy crashed, like everything changed. And that's when MySpace pretty much changed. Yeah, because it was like mm-hmm. MySpace. And then it was like... I remember... Actually, technically, I signed up for Friendster first. Because everybody's like, mm-hmm. check this thing out, Friendster. I'm like, what's that? I signed up and literally the next day, everybody's like, never mind. We're going to MySpace. I'm like, what the hell is that? So now I get, jump over that. And then I felt like it wasn't very long, like maybe a year, maybe two, if I, if I stretch it. And then it was on to Facebook. And then Twitter was That's like right. right after. And it was weird to have Facebook and Twitter at first because you're like, wait, both? Why do we need both? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It was, a, it was an interesting... <laughs> interesting. Why did I type in Facebook? I was trying to look up the history of MySpace and I typed in Facebook. Bastards. <laughs> Well, what's funny, there's like a running joke of how many apps do you need to just talk to the same people? (laughs) We got Snapchat, Instagram, you know, Facebook. (laughs) It makes it it, like now makes a little bit more sense in the sense that there are a lot of people leaving certain services or only on certain ones. But for a while there, it was literally, yeah, like, oh, did you see my post on, on, uh, on MySpace? No, not MySpace. On uh, Facebook? No, but I mm-hmm. saw I saw the repost of it over on your Twitter. You know, because right. we were posting the same shit in three different places or four different places to the same people. It was that's what you call excess. <laughs> Do you know to... about Marco Polo? Uh, the game? No, the app. No, what's that? So, so yeah, so you download Marco Polo and basically you do a recording where you're talking to your friend. So if they live far and whatnot, you just, you know, do a little selfie, start pushing record and you just talk to them like, hey man, how's it going? I've been, I've, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. And then they send a video back to you like in response. Almost? Pretty much. Yeah. And they call it Marco Polo. Interesting. I know that yeah. there was a guy, oh shit, I don't remember who it was, a couple of years ago. I think it was like one of these, like, you know, people that try to tell you how the best, coolest ways to use your social media account. And then they get famous for telling you how to do it. Um, and it was, he was replying to people. Oh, you know who I think, it, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if you know 